we do have a long way to go to get all of the people registered of voting age. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. We will turn out to vote this cycle because we all understand what's at stake. Let's head to Arizona where Republicans are recounting two million ballots by hand. Hello and welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. For the pre and post election period, we're going to try and make sense out of election administration news during this volatile period, from debunking conspiracy theories to demystifying the election process, to generally explaining the why and how of elections. I'm Royful Brown, an American in training, and it's my job to bring you a brisk and brief overview of election administration news from around the nation. I'll speak to subject matter experts from OSET and journalists who have written pieces on elections about the significance of their articles on election democracy that have made the national news. Let's jump right in. From NPR, election officials worry about potential poll worker interference this November by Dustin Jones. America relies on hundreds of thousands of temporary workers to staff the polls during elections. But with misinformation running rampant in certain corners, officials worry some poll workers may try to interfere with the voting process this fall. To help us unpack this piece, we speak to Dana Debravar from OSET, who is the ex-Travis County clerk. She served from 1987 to January 2022. Dana, are you worried that the election official community is going to be infiltrated by partisan members who are up to malfeasance? I am concerned about it because it's already happened here in Austin once before. And I don't know exactly what we're going to do about it. The main concern I have is that folks have been brainwashed. They've been told a lot of information that is just flat out not true. So they're suspicious. They're scared. They don't know what's going on. And because they don't know, they will react badly. And so I'm worried about them. I'm worried about the voters. I'm worried about the entire process. The Bipartisan Policy Centre said that there should be laws and guidelines and precautions that officials can take to ensure a fair and secure election takes place. These steps include training for temporary workers, codes of conduct which should be taken by staffers. But Dana, what exactly should these codes of conduct be? Well, that's a good question. I would like to see a lot of codes of conduct because it's difficult to impose a code of conduct if you don't have state law to back you up. What a poll watcher or a worker would say is, well, you can't impose a code of conduct on me if it doesn't exist in state law. So I'm doubtful that a code of conduct would be all that helpful. What most state laws do say is that they require you to be a registered voter of the area. So it's not going to be outside people coming in. And they do require that you serve the public regardless of what you perceive as their political affiliation. Most states have that requirement. That's a good start. The other thing is I think it's important for the workers who are there to be able to remain calm no matter what, because I think one of the things that happens is sometimes voters get upset. And it's very difficult to remember your procedures when you've got somebody screaming and yelling at you. So the tendency to sort of go off track can happen for a variety of reasons, and they can be good reasons or bad reasons. I think one of the things that we do need to bear in mind is that America has one million poll workers. And we really need to remember that figure 
when the article goes on to tell us that in Michigan's Kent County, a Republican serving as a poll worker was recently charged with two felonies after allegedly tampering with election data during that state's August primaries. We should always be vigilant, but we need to put this problem in some level of perspective, don't we, Dana? I completely agree with you. It is very, very rare to have, especially a poll worker inside a polling place, go and try to fiddle with one of the pieces of voting equipment. No, the real problem is going to be tampering with the people, trying to insult them or scare them, intimidate them. That's where we're going to see problems, if we have any. From The Guardian, quote, be like North Carolina, unquote. Right-wing election efforts signal growing U.S. movement. The state is only one of several where more and more people believe there is widespread voter fraud and their efforts are gaining resources. This piece is written by Jordan Wilkie, a reporter covering elections and elections integrity. I called Jordan about this article, which I found in this week's Guardian. Jordan, you wrote this article and it's got a lot of traction. How long did it take you to research the piece? Well, my colleague Laura Lee and I started researching this piece back in June when we saw that there was a summit for election integrity in North Carolina. And I've been reporting on democracy and mis- and disinformation beat for long enough to know that when there's a whole summit on something called election integrity, that's actually a dog whistle for an anti-democratic attempts at, at observing or participating and disrupting the, the election process. There are two main characters in the article. There's Jim Womack, who is the NCEI president and a Lee County GOP chairman. Then there's Jay Delaney, a Lee County resident who's retired from the Air Force. Would you say that they are sincere in their belief that there has been widespread election fraud? I don't know and I don't particularly care about their sincerity. You know, that's sort of something that's impossible to tell. What's been shown to them is that a lot of their claims are not accurate and they continue to make those claims. And that's what's important to me is against all evidence that they have been shown against information that election officials have provided against public information, against the fact that they themselves have not found any of the fraud they've been looking for for quite some time. They still continue to make claims that the voting system is incredibly insecure and that thousands, if not tens of thousands of people are in North Carolina alone are going to be able to fraudulently vote or perhaps have been fraudulently voting in the past. Is this really just a case of them just wanting to throw enough dirt at the whole system so that people will fundamentally believe that the system of American democracy is compromised? And also, are there any other national organisations which are aiding them in their quest to try and discredit the system? Well, the groups are operating as 501c4s, meaning the way money moves through the organization is opaque to the public. I can only rely on what they told me. And Jay Delancey and Jim Womack told me that they are not receiving any sense of significant funding from any of these national organizations. So from what they said, they're not being paid by the Conservative Partnership Institute or the Heritage Foundation to do this statewide organizing work in North Carolina to observe and monitor and in some ways obstruct election administrators as they're trying to carry out elections. Both Womack and Delancey said that they are able to do this work because they are retired and everyone they seem to be working with throughout the state are local level volunteers who are 
fired up about the idea that there are issues with elections. It's a very appealing call to action, save democracy. The national organizations that are ultimately organizing election integrity, quote unquote, efforts around the country, though, are well healed. They have a lot of money. So whether or not they're individually funding leaders at the local level in this election integrity effort, I believe it shows there are many national organizations like the Bipartisan Policy Center that are keeping tabs on what's happening nationally. The fact that large national organizations like the Conservative Partnership Institute and Heritage Foundation are interested and pushing election conspiracy claims. They also have an interest in spreading mis- and disinformation about how free our country is in terms of our elections. One of the chilling things from your article, and I specifically want to read out this line, Womack says that they've trained more than 1,200 poll observers through both in-person and online sessions and vetted more than 150 people who now have access to the NCEIT statewide incident reporting system. This is a really significant effort, isn't it? And then you go on to say in the article that many of the tactics that they use do border on harassment of election officials, but sometimes skirt just to the right side of legality. Can you explain some of their tactics which they use when they physically get into polling places and put pressure on election officials? This model in North Carolina is based off of what happened in 2021 in Virginia during the gubernatorial race, and based on what did or didn't work, used that model to spread around the country. That was the importance of my interview with Scott Konopasek, who was the elections director for Fairfax County, Virginia, largest county in, in the state of Virginia. And what he described was a significant placement of poll observers in his county, people that wanted to observe things in his office that had never been observed before. And that's more or less fine, except for the fact that their model of observation was, as he described it, aggressive and confrontational, which intimidated his officials and caused them to spend an extraordinary amount of time just explaining very simple processes rather than being able to actually do those processes. But I don't want to cause a panic. I don't want people to self-suppress their vote because they're worried that partisan election observers are going to be there and get in their way. There are a lot of precincts and a lot of early voting sites in North Carolina. So poll observers don't just automatically get access to the polls. They need to be appointed by a party, in this case, primarily the Republican Party. So the number of people they train doesn't directly correlate to the number of people that are placed in voting sites, and they're not there all day, every day. And so this is a more significant effort than we've seen in recent history. But I also want to put that in context. It's not like everyone's going to be immediately harassed and their votes can be challenged and there's intimidation. The scale of what people say they're going to do doesn't always match what they actually do. And what they actually do doesn't always match the scale of true impact. Also, if anyone experiences any kind of voter intimidation or harassment, they can talk with election officials and those election officials will remove anybody who is breaking the norms or breaking the law around harassing voters, which is itself a crime. I just want to demonstrate what these quote unquote election integrity advocates are saying they're going to do and setting up the infrastructure to do so that voters and primarily elected officials and other voter rights advocates can be prepared. So it's very connected nationally. Can you explain exactly how they used inquiries into the integrity of existing voter rolls and then create basically a gumming up of the organizational works? This group identifies the voter rolls as the number one issue that they see for opportunity for people to 
conduct voter fraud. Jim Womack and Jay Delancey say that voter rolls have a number of people on there that are not legitimate voters or not at their current address and that there's great opportunity here for fraud. They have not demonstrated that to be true in any way, although I know that Delancey would quibble with me on that point. I guess their primary effort for the voter rolls is they are working on creating a list of voters that they believe are potentially fraudulent voters. And as there are observers in the polling places during early voting and during election day, see people to come in to cast a ballot. If those people also show up on their list, they're going to try to challenge that voter, which is a legal process by which someone can say, I don't believe this person's a legitimate voter, and I'm going to challenge their legal ability to cast a ballot. There are some significant limitations, but all of these things are interconnected. If there's a lot of voter challenges, if they target certain precincts for voter challenges, it can slow down the voting process because it takes a lot of time to sort out a challenge. They're intensely legal procedures that need to be done in a legitimate and controlled fashion. And a lot of poll workers likely haven't seen this process before. So it's possible that a wave of voter challenges could come up the works. The other thing is there's an organization called ERIC. I believe it's the Electronic Registration Information Center at this point, 33 state, including Washington, D.C. And it's a way for states to cross-reference their voter rolls to make sure that voters aren't registered in multiple states. And it's a way to also use data matching with information provided by the states to make sure that people who die are removed from the voter rolls, people who move out of counties are removed from their voter rolls. And inexplicably, this group that is very concerned about the accuracy and organization of voter rolls and is opposing the state joining this bipartisan state-led voter registration Um, effort. um, Um, What's the rationale for that exactly? The rationale. Womack has described Eric as a nefarious organization connected to George Soros and... Even if it were true, it's not clear why that's relevant, considering that it's almost equal number of states that are led by Republicans, Democrats that have joined the system and that contribute to the data that they use to clean the voter rolls. And North Carolina is trying to join this organization. There's a belief that there's some sort of connection between Eric and the Democratic Party to get out the vote efforts. No part of the claims around that are true. And so it's just not clear to me why, in a logical sense, they're targeting this organization, but they are. And it's been a consistent effort to target this organization by right-wing and election-denying groups around the country. You said specifically in that section of the article that Delaney describes Eric's requirement to contact eligible unregistered voters as putting your finger on the scale with low information voters who use state resources and low income government dependent people are most likely to be predisposed to vote to the left. That's the reason, isn't it? You'd think that this is a fundamentally a great resource to help purge clean coordinate voter rolls. But it's right there, isn't it? He says it. He doesn't want low-income voters to be on state rolls. He doesn't want them to be contacted. Yeah, that's what I meant when I said they believe this is part of a Democratic get-out-the-vote effort. So in the calls that I was on where they were discussing these, it was very clear that they strongly believe that low-income voters lean to the Democratic Party or at least can be manipulated to vote 
democratic. They really ascribe almost a supernatural ability for Democrats to get out the vote among certain groups of people, which is odd. But then even on top of that, it's odd that somehow eligible voters casting their vote is detrimental to democracy. And it's also very strange because the conditions under the agreement with Eric is that people who are eligible to vote who aren't registered are not automatically registered to vote. They're just notified of their ability to register to vote. So the belief in the conspiracy around how Eric is going to turn out votes for the Democratic Party, I'll just let that stand on its own. I will say that the group has been very careful not to make any mention of race at any point in any of the hours and hours of calls that I have been on. I believe the closest that it's gotten is in advice from Jim Womack. There is a voter registration file that the State Board of Elections makes available and updates nearly every day. And he has advised people to keep track of the voter registration files, particularly the demographic information in those files, to make sure there's not a major jump in certain demographic categories. He made it clear that he's looking for significant and perhaps atypical jumps in registration among certain demographic categories. You ended the piece with a really chilling line from Delaney. He says, we have to take this over. It's not something you do overnight. How are we going to stop this spread of distrust in the American electoral system? I'm a journalist, so I think that there's some fundamental infrastructure changes within how we do journalism and how journalism responds to elections coverage and responds to misinformation that needs to change. I turned in this story at over twice the length of what we ultimately ran, so we had to cut a lot of stuff that I really liked. One of the things that we had to cut that I really wish would have stayed in there is a line from Director of Elections Karen Brinson-Bell. She said that anybody who knows that elections are properly run and stay silent is just as guilty as people who spread lies. And she was speaking specifically about elected officials, people who know year in and year out that their elections are fair that they were duly elected, that the election administration system that they rely on for their own office is the same one that other candidates rely on. Any official who has been elected under an election that they consider for themselves to be legitimate, but that they don't speak out about the legitimacy of the election system as a whole, are complicit. From Reuters, U.S. Supreme Court backs Republican in Pennsylvania ballots case by Andrew Chung. The U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday sided with an unsuccessful Republican candidate for a judgeship in Pennsylvania and threw out a lower court's ruling that had allowed the counting of mail-in ballots in the race that he had sought to exclude because voters neglected to write the date on them. To discuss this article, we speak to Gregory Miller, the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of OSET. Greg, what is the wider significance of this case? Because I think for most of the media, it's somewhat flown under the radar. It did indeed, Roy Field, and decision not only injects uncertainty into the process that could adversely affect election officials and workers, but it could inject a lot of confusion and uncertainty into voters as well. One of the components which I didn't really understand uh, the importance of is the Civil Rights Act. That has been historically used in a precedent for voting in Pennsylvania. Can you tell us about that ruling and why its overturning is now so important. So the idea here is that you have process and procedures for complying 
with the submission of a ballot. And the question is, there are items that may be considered immaterial or even to the extent of being an an impedance on the ability for one to participate. We know in history that gave rise to the Civil Rights Act, there were at times steps required, even capricious steps, to make it completely difficult and possible for people to vote. And in this particular case, the issue was whether or not the dating of an envelope next to the signature was a material um, requirement uh, sufficient enough to invalidate a ballot if it failed to have that signature, despite the fact that there's a postmark and despite the fact that the ballot that's in that envelope is the only ballot available and it clearly applies to the current election. Third Circuit held that the ballot uh, dating was immaterial to the overarching need to allow someone to cast a ballot. The Supreme Court disagreed. So what are the ramifications of this, Greg? Obviously, the Third Circuit also takes in not just Pennsylvania, but also New Jersey and Delaware, and also the Virgin Islands. You know, I, I've been giving this a lot of thought because your question is a, is a darn good one. There are implications, and I've spoken with some of my legal colleagues, including David Levine at the German Marshall Fund. There's three aspects here, legal, administrative, and confidence. Legally speaking, for our folks in the audience who care about sorts of things, there's a strong argument that the Pennsylvania Election Code dating requirement violates a materiality provision of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits denying the right to vote based on an error that is immaterial. Now, there's little, if any, disagreement that the purpose of the dating requirement was to help ensure that only timely ballots were counted. Now, if an eligible ballot is clearly received before the deadline for voting, but it's mistakenly outdated, it should be counted. But the alternative is to quote the U.S. Third Circuit Court of Appeals, quote, disenfranchising otherwise qualified voters is what you get. Now, from an administrative standpoint, the Pennsylvania election officials have, well, more accurately, they have ways to ensure that a ballot was received in a timely manner besides referencing the date of the voter declaration. For example, They can date stamp them upon receipt in their offices. In fact, the handwritten date is so inconsequential that the Pennsylvania boards of election have accepted ballots with future dates as well as dates from a long time ago. Finally, there's the confidence issue. As Al Schmidt, a former Republican Philadelphia election board and current director for the Committee on 70, uh, recently noted in a radio interview there in Philly, the danger is that this injects more uncertainty into the process and makes mail-in ballot voting seem uh, controversial in a way, and when it's actually very straightforward. This threat is particularly acute when you consider the stress many Pennsylvania election officials have been under, both with regards to mail-in voting and elections more broadly. Greg, thank you for giving us your input on this important Supreme Court case, which I think most of the media has missed. And I'm glad your radar scope is a bit broader to have got it. You know, a lot of these uh, secretaries of state, they don't have a a full-time security detail uh, the way a a governor or a lieutenant governor would. In Colorado, Jenna Griswold, uh, she's a Democrat, Uh, And so she has uh, received a lot of threats on social media. Uh, So she uh, went out uh, after February of this year, I believe, and uh, resorted to hiring private security. The annual cost is something maybe like uh, $85,000. From CNN, locks, laws, and bullet-resistant shields. Election officials boost security as midterms draw closer. By Frederica Scouten. 
Jenny Coulter is the Senior Director of Stakeholder Relations and Social Media at OSEC. I caught up with her to understand the ramifications of the article. Election officials around the United States are bolstering security, whether it is bulletproof vests or cameras. Has this article come as any surprise to you, Jenya? Sadly, no. And one of the things in this article is I know just about everybody who has been interviewed. And these are some of the best election officials. They don't get phased by much. If they feel the need to wear Kevlar vests or install bulletproof shields, that's a sign that something is going very, very wrong. And I think America really de- does need to you know, sit up and take notice about this. When did we really start to see an uptick in harassment towards election officials, would you say? I'd say, I mean, 2020, one of the things that was interesting is how smoothly the election went in most places. And then right afterwards, I think some people were a bit suspicious of how smoothly things went. And then, of course, obviously, there was a ton of media hype surrounding whether or not the election was stolen. And things just sort of started to snowball from there. One of the really worrying things in this article is that election officials are having to deploy a whole bevy of tactics to secure elections from installing cameras and adding GPS and other tracking devices to ballot bags to monitor them and their movement on election day. And as the article says, some election officials are experiencing an enhanced level of physical threats and violence towards them. Are we going to get to a time when we just can't safeguard American election officials and make them feel safe. We are losing election officials, especially the good ones, at an ab- at Mach 1 speed. And there is not going to be enough people who wish to go into public administration to replace them, or some of the replacements that may come in may have some sort of ulterior motive one way or the other. And one of the things about election administration, yes, you may have political beliefs, you check those at the door when you walk into the office. Your job is to be as to administer elections and keep custody of the records in as nonpartisan a way as humanly possible. And losing that, I think, would be incredibly deleterious to American democracy. So that's the end of this week's episode. Special thanks goes out to Gregory Miller, Dana Debovar, Frayne Masters, who beautifully read out our headlines, Jenya Coulter, and of course, Jordan Wilkie. If you've found a new story that you would like us to comment on, you can email me at royfield at osetinstitute.org. That's Royfield spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. You can also put a question to the OSET team via SpeakPipe, where you can record your question and we'll put it on a future episode. Dead Men Don't Vote is supported by the team at the Trust the Vote Project. The Trust the Vote Project is an initiative of the OSET Institute, Inc., a tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit California Public Benefit Corporation. You can find us at trustthevote.org forward slash podcast or follow us on Twitter at trustthevote or at Dead Men Don't Vote. See you next week.